Marvin Goldfried is a distinguished professor of psychology at Stony Brook University, where he helped develop the graduate program in clinical psychology. He's the co-founder of the Society for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration. Alan Francis is a professor of psychiatry and chair emeritus at Duke and was chair of the DSM-4 task force. Marvin describes the evolution of his psychotherapy orientation as psychodynamic, behavioral, CBT, and eventually integrative. He practices, teaches, and supervises what works clinically using direct and indirect evidence base. Alan describes his approach to psychotherapy as whatever works or no one size fits all. He was trained and taught at the Columbia University Psychoanalytic Center, but remains equally interested in brief, supportive, cognitive, behavioral, interpersonal, and family therapies. Please enjoy this week's episode. This is Marvin Goldfried welcoming you to Talking Therapy together with my esteemed colleague and friend. Good morning, Marv. Don't be ashamed to, to give your name, Alan. Oh, Alan Francis. Thank you. Right. Very good. So far, so good. Okay. Keep well, prompting t- me. Whenever I make a mistake, please help me out. Okay. As long as you make mistakes, I'm fine with that. So anyway, w- t- today, um, let's talk about fads in therapy. Um, not generally. Let's talk about a current fad in therapy, which is kind of like, a, a quote, a new thing that is over 100 years old, but it's new now because it can be new, but it used to be old and it wasn't accepted when it was old. Yeah, I think the, the fads happen so much in psychotherapy, we, we need to expect them, anticipate them. Each fad usually has a kernel of truth in it, which is why it becomes popular. And the, the current most popular fad in psychotherapy is trauma-informed therapy. It's is it any kind of trauma or sexual trauma? Well, it, it, no, it can be any kind of, well, that's, that's really the point, Marvin. It can be any kind of trauma happening at any time before the moment of therapeutic contact. Um, but most commonly it's described as tra- childhood trauma and it can be any kind of childhood mm-hmm. trauma. So it includes sexual abuse, physical abuse, witnessing uh, un- unpleasant activities in the household or outside the household, um, being the subject of battles between parents, uh, substance abuse in parents, any separation from parents, it really covers the waterfront. And that's, that's the basic point. That in studies of what percentage of normal healthy people who haven't gone to a psychiatrist or a psychotherapist, what percentage of them have at least one of these traumas in childhood? The numbers are very high, something like uh, 60 to 80 percent of people. So, so what's wrong with that? I mean, that sounds reasonable to me that, th- that this exists. That it's so common. Yeah, it, it, it makes it clear that it's a huge problem that we should worry about protecting our kids. It's a very important issue, childhood okay. trauma. But the trouble is the assumption that all of adult psychopathology is the result of earlier traumatic experiences. So that the um, the typical way a session would begin, the first session would begin in trauma-informed therapy would not be to say, well, what, what's, what are your problems or how can I help you? Which would be the traditional way we might greet a patient. It would be what's been done to you. The assumption is the, the um, association is made that the correlation of early childhood traumas to adult pathology means causality. That because someone experienced 
problems early on in life that were unsettling, that that explains everything that's going wrong in their life currently, all their, their symptoms. So anybody who presents for therapy is, is assumed to have had childhood traumas? Well, that's the that it could be adult traumas as well, but trauma, well, the, yeah. the trauma is seen as a, a necessary and, and, and usually sufficient cause of the adult problems. And the force of this, and, and, and again, there's a, a kernel of truth in this, very important, that one sixth of people have had four or more of these traumas, and that the people who've had more traumas have more current day psychopathology. So it, it informs that the uh, correlation that says the early traumas must have been the cause of the current problems. It ignores the fact that all the um, adopted away studies that have shown that if you adopt a kid away, even at birth, they're more likely to have problems related to their birth parents than they are to their adoptive parents. And that there's not just early childhood trauma that goes into creating current problems, that part of it is also genetic risk. So the, the excellent idea here is, and the valuable idea is, we have to be concerned about the almost ubiquity of painful early childhood experiences and later traumas. It's not just restricted to childhood ones, that this is a very important contributor to later psychopathology. But the mistake here, the thing that makes it a fad is to assume it's the only contributor and that the therapist can be qualified to do therapy on the basis of the fact that they're good at dealing with trauma, even if they're completely incompetent at dealing with everything else. Well, you know, cognitive, uh, scientists have a concept called uh, confirmatory bias. And that is you have a certain way of looking at things and you therefore will pay attention only to those things that confirm your bias and ignore anything that doesn't fit into your bias. So it sounds like there's a real clinical danger here or danger in, in case formulation and decision-making. Well, the first person to point out the impact of that bias on psychotherapy was our old friend, Saul Rosenzweig, that in the paper that you uh, began uh, quoting uh, last week, and I wrote a, we wrote a blog on that's going to appear very soon right. in, in Psychiatric Times, he makes very clear that one of the common errors in understanding what promotes change in psychotherapy that if there's a theory of the psychotherapy and the person gets better in that psychotherapy, the assumption is often made, aha, they got better because they were really following our theory and our techniques made them better because those techniques were based on the theory. And what he pointed out so brilliantly was that since non-specific factors in therapy, common factors in therapy right. are so important in determining the outcome, Mm -hmm. The fact that you get a good result doesn't prove your theory. Well, you know, my, my theory of headaches, I've ever told you my theory of headaches. Uh -uh. It's, it's the absence of uh, aspirin in the body. Right. And if you take aspirin, you know, you prove that that, that was the cause. I mean, exactly. it's, clearly the logic doesn't make any sense. Where, where is this coming from? Well, I, I think that there are many factors, and many of them are very important, valuable factors in the, in the last uh, 50 years of, of our history. Um, the problem is the overemphasis 
and that once you see this as an, uh, an explain all for everything, you're a hammer looking for nails. Yeah, but what? Okay, no, I, I got that. But part, part of part of the um, emphasis on this comes from the civil rights movement and um, the feminist movement of the 60s, 70s and 80s with the realization that many people undergo terribly stressful lives in childhood, that the um, incidence of uh, symptoms in adulthood, which is especially high in women, may have been connected to the fact that they've been victimized um, even more than boys have as kids and, and as uh, men have as women, that they've experienced more trauma. And that it was almost paternalistic of psychotherapists to say the, the problem may have something to do with your current life situation or may have something to do with who you are rather than what have you been victim victim to what you're a survivor of problems rather than a bearer of, of symptoms and so it's a very in some ways it's a very appealing and in many cases actually true way of looking at things but people- but i can look at i can i can give an argument using that same premise okay of civil rights and and uh uh, uh the uh discrimination against minorities of various sorts but and women, you, and, women. And, and and women but what you can right but what you can also argue is that in the current life situation there are environmental factors that are the stressors women get paid less women have more duties particularly if they they have childcare and profession or work um ethnic and racial minorities have less opportunity to earn money, to get good medical care. This is not necessarily early uh, trauma. This is, this is contemporary trauma. Yeah, and, and I think that the, the theory allows for that. So it doesn't have to be childhood trauma. It could be the trauma in everyday life today, that if you're suffering stressors today, that uh, are causing the symptoms that 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 would be part of the uh, or maybe the main part of the treatment. So that's not really so much of a problem. It is a problem for those. And this, here's the, the the nightmare situation: a patient comes in with a current, maybe specific symptom like social phobia. Okay. And when I refer someone for social phobia treatment, I want the therapy to be focused on that symptom, because okay. we have pretty efficient ways of dealing with that symptom. Right. Instead, a typical trauma-informed therapist might be looking for the earlier life experiences, the the traumas and stressors in er earlier life, and or just the current ones. Maybe you're having trouble with your husband, that's why you have the social phobia, rather than trying to deal with the symptom as it exists now. So it has the same dilemma attached to it as psychoanalysis does, of always assuming that the symptoms come from an early life experience or earlier life experience and not necessarily focusing enough on the symptom, but focusing immediately on the traumas that are presumed to have caused right. Well, yes. And there is certainly a germ, again, to echo what you're saying, there's a germ of truth there because um, if you take a developmental history, which you really should take with your CBT or any other therapy, uh, orientation, you find out the air, the areas of an individual patient's vulnerability based on the past and how that interacts with current life situations. But that doesn't mean that there's always that interaction um, because some stressors 
But look at what's happening with the pandemic and, and people who are depressed and anxious. Are, are we saying that all these people had early trauma experiences? Now, again, the theory would, would be fine with the fact that the trauma is current. So it's, it's only in its extreme use where everything is attributed to early life traumas, current yeah. life traumas. And, and here's, I think, the crucial point. I can't imagine any useful psychotherapy that's not, used, not, not very interested in past stressors and traumas and current stresses and traumas that you couldn't do psychotherapy without being trauma-informed. It's in the essence of psychotherapy to be interested. Well, I, I beg to differ with you. There are many CBT people who do therapy without that. I'm well, not I, saying it's good I, therapy. I think that, no, I think that implicitly they, they would be interested in what are the current stressors. And that falls into a broad conception of the trauma-informed therapy. But the problem is no one size fits all. Right. And you take it to the extreme of believing that you couldn't have a current symptom without there being a trauma, um, trauma yeah. in, the, in the remote past and childhood or a current trauma. If you focus only on trauma and not all the rest of the complicated things that go into uh, the biopsychosocial model of understanding yeah. Yeah. patient symptoms, then you're always going to be diverting the patient down this one channel. And when a patient comes in and says, you know, I never had trauma, the, the argument will often be, well, you know, often traumas are, are repressed. Let's try to go back on your past that you can, in the therapeutic situation, create new traumas that were never part of the patient's memory and assume uh, yeah. that they're causing the current symptoms. So it has all of the problems that, that um, the wrong psychoanalytic theory is wonderful when applied well to current patient problems, it's awful if it assumes that every current patient problem is connected to the past. And trauma-informed therapy has that exact same problem. Yeah. Well, you know, it's fascinating because if we look back into the, the uh, history of, uh, of psychotherapy and what Freud found, uh, we, we see something that uh, is very, very different. You're talking about people are now interested in this because the zeitgeist is such that it's, it's heightening our sensitivity to look for things like early sexual trauma. Now, as we know, Freud, his original theory was that there was early sexual trauma that was creating the problems in the women that he was seeing. And he presented a paper in, in uh, um, 1896 on the etiology of hysteria which is a fascinating paper because you, you read it and you see he gives descriptions of his patients' reactions that look like PTSD. That is, some male touches them just accidentally and they have this extreme overreaction. Plus, they report a history of being sexually abused. So he presented this at a conference and he was ridiculed. His, his thesis at a conference, which was then later uh, uh, presented in this paper, was um, I put forward the thesis that at the bottom of every case, every case of hysteria, there are one or more occurrences of premature sexual experience. Yeah, it's interesting how fads repeat themselves and 
Freud's a great example of a correction he made and then another correction he made, and he finally got it pretty much right. The, his first model, which he was extremely attached to, he wanted to be famous. And he thought that his claim to fame in, in Vienna and in the larger world was going to be this exclusive connection between early sexual disorder and sexual victimization, sexual trauma, and later psychopathology theory. This was his brilliant first idea that was going to make the young man famous. Yes, he, he, he said he, he was looking for the source of the Nile. He was looking to find something that no one had ever felt before found before. So I'm with you. Continue. The next step was he began his self-analysis, which is maybe not always the best way of doing analysis, being both the analyst and the patient. And he realized that he had a number of hysterical symptoms himself, and he couldn't remember or didn't want to believe that there was sexual trauma in his own life. And that created the next brilliant insight. Maybe it's not always an actual external trauma, maybe it's sometimes a fantasy in the, in the child. And he then switched models for a while to think, well, the trauma stuff couldn't have been true. It must have been the inborn sexual um, impulses that were, the child brought that created fantasies of sexual trauma. And it was almost like blaming the patient exactly. for having the fantasy. Jeffrey uh, Masson got access to his correspondence. I guess he sweet-talked Anna Freud uh, to, to give him this access. After the presentation which uh, 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 that he gave about the, quote, the seduction theory, um, there were negative reactions. So uh, Kraft Ebbing called it a fairy tale. And Freud said, the donkeys gave it an icy reception. They can all go to hell. <laughs> So he was very much committed to this theory. Uh, well, it, but and then it he, took a few years before he switched. Very quickly, though, when you think about it, he did switch. And he went into the fairy tale. He put his whole, whole prestige and his entire ambition for fame onto the idea that it was a childhood fantasy based on inborn sexual impulses. Now, yes. the thing to understand about Freud, two things to understand that... Uh, are very important in order not to overestimate him as he was during his own lifetime. So Freud was terribly overestimated during his lifetime, but he should also be appreciated now because a lot of what he said was valuable. And there's a tendency to ridicule him now because not everything he said was right then. Right. He was working within a context of science and brain science that was much more primitive than what we have today. And the theories he had about what, what caused neurosis based on exclusively on sex make no sense today. Lots of other things cause. He was reductionistic in his first model that it was all the kids had been seduced. He was reductionistic in his second model. It was all fantasy on the part of the kids based on inborn. Both models were reductionistic, neither right. right. However, later in his career, to his credit, Freud came up with what he called a complementary model that adult psychopathology would be some combination of biological inborn um, impulses and, and proclivities, early life experience, interacting together 
then with later life experience, he developed eventually the model that we would use today. And the problem today is anyone who sticks to a strictly biological model or anyone who sticks strictly to a, a psychosocial stress model will be missing the fact that people are complicated and that there's always an interaction of both. Right. And there's always an interaction with the context, the social environment, the zeitgeist at the time. So the turn of the century in Vienna to talk about female sexuality or female, female being sexually abused, particularly since it was done by family and friends, potentially, it was not a very smart thing to do, both economically as well as politically, because it didn't fit. Now things fit. So we have to raise the question that our theorizing, uh, how much of our theory is a function of the social zeitgeist that we all are in at the time? If women were sexually liberated back at the, in, in Vienna back in the 1800s, would he have gotten rid of that theory? Uh, it was because women were sexually oppressed that he said, well, it wasn't that they were really abused. It's something that they, quote, wanted. So that is like outrageous. But that fit into the sexual repression context of the environment at the time. And the time now similarly reawakens all sorts of reductionistic theories so we have one-size-fits-all theories that attribute everything to biology, one-size-fits-all theories that attribute everything to psychology, one-size-fits-all theories that attribute everything to, to external stressors. And it's always appealing to join one or another side. And then we have a civil war within psychotherapy where different people are picking parts of the elephant and saying, this is the elephant, and not being blind to the fact that people are much more complex than any one theory. Yeah. Well, beautiful example of that is um, the NIMH funding for research to find biomarkers because psychopathology is a chemical imbalance. Uh, and I don't know, was it was 20 years, 30 years where the money was spilt into to that by Insel, who then later reneged? Yeah, it's fascinating. There have been now 30 years of the decade of brain, tens of billions of dollars spent, hasn't helped a single patient. And it goes to the fact that if you're a biological reductionist on one side, you're going to see everything as a chemical reaction in the brain. And all we have to do is figure out which chemi chemical, which network in the brain, which fibers are firing, and we cure humanity's problems. If you're a trauma-informed therapist, a rigid trauma-informed therapist, and you see everything through the, the lens of trauma, then the first thing you're going to tell each patient is, not there's a chemical imbalance, but rather you must have been abused to have these symptoms. Both of those models really reduce the dignity of, of, of human life and the complexity of who we are. And they lead to, th to, to a therapeutic approach that will work for some people, but maybe be disastrous for many others. Yeah, yeah. What I would suggest is because there is bias within the profession of saying, well, here's my favorite variable, and this is the cause, and no, 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 here's my variable. This, it's no, it's cognition. No, no, it's not cognition, it's behavior. No, no, it's the environment. It's like, well, we need to get people who are biased and talk to each other and bring in practicing therapists who 
after a while, their bias may be overcome by the reality of what they observe clinically. Bring them into the dialogue. Bring the patients into the dialogue. Uh, we, we need, when there's bias, you can correct the bias by having different vantage points. And if, if you get consensus from people who are coming from different biases and theoretical orientations, if you get consensus, then there's probably a very robust phenomenon there and we should pay attention to it. How much success have you had in doing that for the last 40 years, Morgan, getting people to overcome their biases? I can't put a number on it. There are more people that are thinking this way. And I think that that's a major reason for us doing this podcast. That yes. That both of us feel a kind of despair about the civil wars in psychotherapy. Yeah. And are trying to do our best to be ecumenical and point out over and over again that the different techniques are not competing. They're complementary. And yeah. that any competent therapist has to use all of the approaches to meet their patient's needs. There's one thing I want to say before we stop also. Yes. The, the push towards a um, exclusively trauma-informed therapy that denies other causes of, of um, problems in, in the patients and clients we see has also been a push against psychiatric diagnosis. The, it's, psychiatric diagnosis is seen as a kind of infringement on the, the, the treatment and on the individual's dignity that diagnosis isn't really necessary at all because the problems are all problems of traumatic origin. Mm. And the only goal of the therapy is to figure out which traumas are causing the symptoms. It therefore doesn't matter whether psychiatrically you might get a diagnosis of um, major depressive disorder versus anxiety disorder versus personality disorder versus schizophrenia versus substance abuse versus it's the medication you're taking that's causing the symptom because all of those things are missing the point and the main point, and maybe for many people, the only point is what was the trauma? That's the right. diagnostic yeah. question. And so that, maybe we should week, talk. Yeah, sorry, last, go ahead. Last, last week we spoke about diagnosis that, that, that I think we want to emphasize over and over again, that to make a treatment effective for the wide variety of patients that we see you have to include everything. You have to be good at diagnosis. You have to be good at the different techniques of psychotherapy. Anyone who believes one size fits all will be forcing patients into a very narrow right. uh, range of, of ideas that will often be harmful for them. I don't know if I totally agree with that because I think better than diagnosis is case formulation. But why don't we do a discussion about that? of where does diagnosis come in and where does case formulation come in? And you're uh, not saying, Marvin, that they compete. You're just saying that you need to do both. Yes, but maybe we should get into that in greater detail at some further discussion. How about next but, week? Okay. Um, I'll see you next week and hopefully <laughs> see, the, see, see the people. I don't see the people, but hopefully they'll see us or hear us uh, in our next podcast. Stay safe.